Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're concluding our series, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem, with a message titled, The Sovereign God. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 12, verses 18 to 25, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is no city on earth like Jerusalem. It's a city of eternal hope, and yet it's also a city of sin and constant disappointment contains a long history of men who are enemies of God. Now, the first time we read about Jerusalem in the Bible, we do so in the context of Abraham. The incident is recorded in Genesis 14, where Abram, as he was then called, had just rescued his nephew from an invading army. He returns home and he's met by a priest king named Melchizedek, whom we're told is the king of Salem. That's most likely a shortened version of Jerusalem. The word Salem is a derivative, probably in another language, of the Hebrew word shalom, peace. Melchizedek is the king of the city of peace. He comes out to bless Abram, and in response, Abram gives him a tenth of everything he has. Later on in the book of Hebrews, the writer says that Melchizedek is the priest without genealogy. He means that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High simply because God appointed him to be such. Furthermore, Hebrews says that he is a foreshadowing of Jesus the Messiah. The next time we read about Jerusalem in the Bible, well, the city isn't actually mentioned, but it's hauntingly near. Abraham is taking his son up Mount Moriah to offer him up as a sacrifice. You know, in that place, as the boy is bound to the altar, God intervenes and spares Isaac, provides a ram as a substitute for the life of the boy. Now, if you read that passage and in your mind's eye, you imagine Mount Moriah as some destitute hill off of the wilderness somewhere, well, you'd be wrong. The hill of Moriah would have been immediately outside of the walls of Jerusalem, slightly overlooking the city, which was right there. Next, Jerusalem is mentioned again when Joshua is conquering the promised land. And at that time, the king of Jerusalem is a man named Adonai Zedek, who mounts a counteroffensive against Joshua, and then he's killed in the process. But the actual city, Jerusalem, because of its Surrounding geography is a very difficult city to capture. And so as Israel settles into the promised land, it's not until the time of David that the city's actually captured for Israel. And it's Solomon who builds a temple on the very spot where Abraham had once tied Isaac to the altar. And it was there at the building of the temple that Solomon had prayed that the Lord would draw nations from among the Gentiles, that they would join with Israel and seek the one true God in that place in the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the hope of Jerusalem. It was the city of the king that waited for the day when one of its kings would become the Messiah, the hope of the whole world. That is the wonder of Jerusalem. But then there's the other reality. The kings of Jerusalem are a mixed bag. Some like David and Abijah and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah. I mean, these men are godly. They sought the Lord and they're looking for the coming of the Messiah. But then there are the other kings like Jehoram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Zedekiah, evil kings that led the people of Israel into utter ruin, who paved the way for the anger of God and the destruction of the city. And if you ever want to get depressed, read the book of Lamentations and try to imagine the sufferings of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonians. See, that's the paradox of the city that's Jerusalem. On the one hand, consider the words of Psalm 48 verses 1 to 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. 
His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. On the other hand, consider the words of Jesus as is recorded in Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, Jerusalem is both of that. And in terms of our study in Acts, we've seen this is the reality. On the one hand, Jerusalem must always be remembered by all Christians with a sense of gratefulness. For it is in Jerusalem that not only did our Savior die, but he was also raised to life there. It's just outside of Jerusalem, that is, on the Mount of Olives, when Jesus was taken up into heaven. And when he returns again to the earth, his foot will first touch the Mount of Olives. Yeah, he will return to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem, he will govern the whole earth. But it was also in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit first came to indwell believers and there also to create the church of Jesus. The church was begun in Jerusalem, and it was from Jerusalem that the worldwide mission of the church was birthed. It was also in Jerusalem that the long history of persecution against the followers of Jesus was birthed. The first Christian martyr died in Jerusalem. The first of the apostles of our Lord, the Apostle James, also martyred in Jerusalem. And when we come to the end of Acts chapter 12, which is the end of the first great division of this book, we will see that the church is about to outgrow Jerusalem. Acts chapter 13, a study which I will, the Lord willing, leave for another time, and now puts the church in Antioch. There is its center, northern Syria, as that church gives leadership to the mission of global evangelization. Jerusalem begins to fade. And that's not to say that in the future, Jerusalem still doesn't play a major role. Acts 15 records a very important council, Council of Jerusalem. But even here, Jerusalem is not spearheading the global Christian movement. Rather, Jerusalem is prepared not to stand in the way of the global Christian movement. Those of you who know something of the history of the Church of Jesus will know that it was in the year A.D. 70 that the Romans utterly burned Jerusalem to the ground and destroyed the temple. And from that time, no temple has ever stood there again. As for the Jewish people, many were brutally butchered back then. Others fled the land. The Jews didn't get their homeland back from the year AD 70 until the year 1948. And as for the church, at times, it did seem to have a presence there, but often it didn't. And never again to this very day has Jerusalem been the center of the Christian faith. And by the end of the first century, even Antioch was eclipsed. By that time, the center of global Christianity seemed to have become Ephesus, the city where the last surviving of the Lord's apostles lived out his final years. And so in a way, at the very end of Acts chapter 12, it marks the moment of transition. The church of Jesus is going to become larger and larger, winning ever more men and women to faith in Christ. But the story of the gospel was going to become so much larger than anything that the city of Jerusalem would ever have produced. After all, the church is the church of Jesus, our Savior. It's not the church of Jerusalem. So let's finish off where we left off last. We'd seen King Herod had executed James the apostle, and then he had had Peter arrested. That would have ended up in a court that was very much like a lynch mob. But God is always sovereign. In the middle of the night, while Peter was chained to not one, but two different Roman soldiers, one on his right and the other on his left, 
Suddenly, God's angel entered into the prison cell. All the Roman guards were most likely caused to fall asleep. The chains fell off Peter. The angel led him out to the streets of Jerusalem, where he found his way into the home of a woman named Mary, who was right then hosting a prayer meeting in her house for him. Our passage yesterday ended with Peter himself leaving Jerusalem. You know, in the past, when persecution had broken out there, you know, for some reason, the apostles had been left untouched. But now they had become the target of the persecution. And so Peter, and I imagine the other apostles as well, were all moving out of Jerusalem. But before Peter left, he made it plain that they were to relay everything that had happened to James. Now, the James that Peter has in mind here is obviously not the apostle James. He's just been killed. But rather, this James is the half-brother of our Lord. You might remember that during Jesus' earthly ministry, it was James who did not believe. But you might also remember that after the resurrection, Jesus had appeared to him. And now it would seem that James, in the absence of the apostles, was becoming the leader, or to put it in our terms, the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. But let's now get back to the end of Acts chapter 12. Our passage tells us that Peter has escaped from prison. And so I'm reading verses 18 and 19. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. According to the Code of Justinian, guards who lost their prisoners were to face the same punishment that the escaped prisoner was to have received. So we can see that Herod was in no doubt about it. He knew that Peter would have been executed. No doubt Herod is furious. Herod then leaves Jerusalem for Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is the city where, you're going to remember, Cornelius had been stationed. It's at this time, and I have no doubt, there would have been a very vibrant church of Jesus in the home of Cornelius. Herod will find out that from now on, the followers of Jesus are going to be everywhere he goes. But that's not, as we will see, Herod's greatest problem. God sees all things. God's sovereign and God's just. Wicked rulers will not have the last word. God always does. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you. It's our Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience some of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many other biblical figures walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's royal palace. Worship at the Garden Tomb and go sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Enjoy daily Bible teaching from Dr. Neufeld and be encouraged as we share time with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway and special musical guests. Don't miss this wonderful opportunity to visit the Holy Land. You'll be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Caesarea was the city that was built by Herod the Great, the grandfather of King Herod Agrippa. Caesarea was often called the great Gentile city in Palestine. It must have been a magnificent city. It had a a large hippodrome, an amphitheater, and a theater, amazing aqueduct, 
bringing fresh water to a very desert location right along the Mediterranean Sea. I think the most impressive feature of the city was its seaport, had large concrete blocks in the ocean. It was a concrete that was specially made to withstand the degradation of the ocean. The Romans used it as a chief naval base in the area. It was a city in which all the Roman troops of the area had their home base. Herod Agrippa, after the execution of James and after Peter had escaped his grasp, goes there. So why? You know, were there official duties that he had to attend to? Yeah, I think so. But it might also be that Herod got his first whiff of truth. He unfortunately didn't internalize it. I mean, why didn't he do further investigation as to how it came about that Peter had escaped and why it should have been an impossibility for it to have happened? Perhaps if he had paid attention, he might have come to the conclusion that God had been on Peter's side. Perhaps he might also have concluded that it was not possible to fight against God. Perhaps he should have considered the words of Jesus, that Jerusalem was the place that kills the prophets, and that he was the very one who was on the side of those who had hated the prophets of God. All of those sacrifices in the temple that he had participated in in the past had not delivered him from his own evil heart. But Herod, at least so it would seem, is not interested in the lessons he might have learned in Jerusalem. He's a man of action, and now he's off to oversee some duties where Rome rules. So now to Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. We have no historical record of this event outside of Acts. Josephus doesn't mention it, and so we don't know what led to Herod's anger. Perhaps he's still breathing out anger over his failed attempt to kill Peter, and at any rate, at this moment, he's angry with Tyre and Sidon. And given that the leadership of those two cities immediately seek to tamp down Herod's anger, we know that Herod had the upper hand. See, the reality was that Tyre and Sidon were not under Herod's jurisdiction. They were under the jurisdiction of the Roman governor of Syria. But Luke tells us that whereas they might have ignored Herod's anger, they really couldn't do that. Luke says their country was dependent on Judea for their food supply. It's what happens anywhere when any country is dependent on another one as their only supplier of an essential service. And given the king's anger, they realized that Herod would gladly starve them out. And so Tyre and Sidon send a delegation to Caesarea. And they get a hold, says Luke, of the king's chamberlain, a man named Blastus. You know, a chamberlain is quite literally the officer over the king's bedchamber. You know, that office would give Blastus access to almost everything that would have been said in the most trusted circles right around the king's ear. The delegation from Tyre and Sidon, they're desperate. Herod has all the power and they have no leverage. How can they make peace? So let's keep reading. Acts 12, 21 to 22. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Now, interestingly enough, Josephus does mention this event. He said that this occurred in Caesarea, where he celebrated a festival in honor of the Roman emperor. Now, this date coincided with the end of the grain harvest in which the merchants would come to buy wheat. Josephus says that Herod entered the arena at daybreak wearing magnificent clothing and that he came at just the time and just the location 
when the sun's rays would shine directly on him and they would reflect off of his cloak. Clearly, Herod wanted to look like a Roman god. See, what a hypocrite. When in Jerusalem, he would sacrifice at the temple and keep the Jewish law. And when in Caesarea, he would play the theme of the emperor gods. This man really was a piece of work. So let me read directly from Josephus. He writes, Straight away his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his own good, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious to us, they added. And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. And then Josephus adds, the king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. In other words, he loves being adored as a god. And Luke, who has fully researched this event, says the delegation from Tyre and Sidon, who knew what a lunatic the man really was, were shouting, the voice of a god and not a man. You know, Galatians 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Indeed, those who mock God should beware. 2 Kings 18 and 19 records a remarkable occurrence. Hezekiah, the godly king, was then king in Jerusalem, and Sennacherib, the feared king of Assyria, sent his army to destroy Jerusalem. The chief officials of the king of Assyria, when they arrived at the city of Jerusalem, began to shout insults in the hearing of all in the city. Are you trusting in God, they ask, and then they laugh. Where are the gods of the other nations who trusted in their gods, they mock. Has any god ever delivered us from this great army? Oh, they're just getting warmed up. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to fall just like the other gods have fallen before us. He's no match for us. And on and on they mock. Indeed, they send a mocking letter and it arrives to the hands of Isaiah the prophet. He reads it and goes into the temple of God, spreads the letter out before God. Here, says Isaiah, the words of mockery by which these men mock you. And that night God sends his angel and one warrior in God's army, only one, strikes down 185,000 Assyrian troops. It's a disaster. The remaining Assyrian army returns home in utter disgrace and in the chaos which reflects on the king of Assyria, the king's own two sons assassinate him. That's the end of that story. Watch out, men of power, that you do not mock the living God. Herod Agrippa knew that account quite well. But here's a man who took no heed when God rescued Peter from his hand, and he takes no heed when men who are desperate are forced to cry out that he's a god. Indeed, it feeds his ego. He mocks God. Now look at Acts 12:23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus claimed that Herod actually suffered for five days before he died. Some scholars suggested that Herod had intestinal roundworms, which grow 10 to 16 inches long. You know, perhaps, but intestinal worms rarely kill, although they, they can cause suffering. Another suggestion is that he may have died very much like that madman Antiochus had died. You know, Second Maccabees says that he had a disease that made the flesh in his body rot away, and his flesh was swarming with worms, and the stench caused revulsion. Well, however it happened, Luke gives little details. Remember, Luke is a physician, and yet he refuses to give us the details. What Luke really wants to focus on is not the disease itself, but the spiritual cause of the disease. Herod has been made an enemy of God, and God will not be mocked. If we take Josephus' account as accurate, it would seem that Herod died in the year AD 44, 
the persecutor of the church, the man who was sure that he had the power to destroy the church by killing the apostles, now finds out that God is sovereign and he will not be mocked. During this series, I've made mention of the fact that the early church advanced against all odds, at least from a human perspective. I mean, how does the powerless Jesus movement bring the gospel to the world? Indeed, the center of the Christian faith, Jerusalem, fades in importance, but Jesus never fades in importance. Let's read now to the very end of Acts chapter 12. I'm reading verses 24 and 25. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Luke ends this section in Acts with two statements. The first is that the word of God increased. The number of the followers of Jesus was simply multiplying. Nothing but nothing could stop it, even the destruction of Jerusalem. The second thing that Luke wants us to know is that Barnabas and Saul have returned back to the church in Antioch. You remember that Jerusalem Christians, because of persecution and because of famine, are in dire straits, and the church in Antioch, expressing their solidarity with Jerusalem, sends them food so that they can make it through the famine. The first chapter of the life of the church is done. It has been, to say the least, an amazing adventure. God is sovereign. He guards his gospel. He guards his people. He protects the church of Jesus. Another chapter in Acts is about to begin. The church in Antioch commissions Saul and Barnabas to begin a global missionary enterprise. The church of Jesus is now moving beyond Jerusalem to the rest of the world. Jesus said this is exactly what would happen. The sovereign God would make sure of it. Thanks so much, John. A great series. Let me ask you this. You know, we find ourselves in a time in North America when the church or Christian organizations feel the need to be found in the favor of governing powers for whatever reason. Are we at risk of compromising? Well, first of all, I want to say, Ben, that you know we don't take for granted how important it is when governments do provide us freedoms. And so we want to be thankful, continue to pray for that. And why do I say that? I want to say that if all those freedoms are taken away, it should not change a thing because our confidence has never been in the government as a whole. Our confidence has been in God. Uh, he takes care of all of these things. So uh, let's continue to put our hope there and not in political salvation. Thanks so much, John. It was a great series. And remember to join us again next week as we continue looking into the Word of God right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we partner with radio stations across the country, like the one you're listening to right now, to air the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. We want to thank the faithfulness of our radio partners and remind you to thank them as well. We also want to thank our listeners from across Canada who support this ministry with your encouragement and financial contributions. Your thoughtfulness ensures Bible teaching is made available in your community and across Canada as Back to the Bible Canada remains steadfastly committed to teaching the life-changing truths of the Bible. To our radio partners and listeners alike, thank you. This ministry of Bible teaching on radio could not be accomplished without you. To learn more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada and all the resources available, call us at 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.